This is Our American Stories, and on our show, we often like to ask writers to read what they've written. And by the way, not just big writers and famous writers and writers for the Washington Post or the big newspapers of this country or the big magazines, just ordinary folks who post something. It doesn't, well, you don't have to be a writer to be a writer. And this writer in particular was the international admissions director for Dartmouth College. It can be hard to know which students to admit to a place like Dartmouth. It's really competitive to get in. But one year there was a student that stood out above the rest. Here is Rebecca Sabke reading her article for us. Check this box if you're a good person. When I give college information sessions at high schools, I'm used to being swarmed by students. Usually, as soon as my lecture ends, they run up to me to hand me their resumes, fighting for my attention so that they could tell me about their internships or summer science programs. But last spring, after I spoke at a New Jersey public school, I ran into an entirely different kind of student. When the bell rang, I stuffed my leftover pamphlets into a bag and began to navigate the human tsunami that is a high school hallway at lunchtime. Just before I reached the parking lot, someone tapped me on the shoulder. Excuse me, ma'am, a student said, smiling through a set of braces. You dropped a granola bar on the floor of the cafeteria. I chased you down since I thought you'd want your snack. Before I could even thank him, he handed me the bar and dissolved into the sea of teenagers. Working in undergraduate admissions at Dartmouth College has introduced me to many talented young people. I used to be the director of international admissions and I'm now working part-time after having a baby. Every year, I'd read over 2,000 college applications from students all over the world. The applicants are always intellectually curious and talented. They climb mountains, had extracurricular clubs, and develop new technologies. They're the next generation's leaders. The problem is that in a deluge of promising candidates, many remarkable students become indistinguishable from one another, at least on paper. It is incredibly difficult to choose whom to admit. Yet, in the chaos of SAT scores, extracurriculars, and recommendations, one quality is always irresistible in a candidate. Kindness. It's a trait that would be hard to pinpoint on applications, even if colleges ask the right questions. Every so often, though, it can't help but shine through. The most surprising indication of kindness I've ever come across in my admissions career came from a student who went to a large public school in New England. He was clearly bright, as evidenced by his class rank and teacher's praise. He had a supportive recommendation from his college counselor and an impressive list of extracurricular. Even with these qualifications, he might not have stood out. But one letter of recommendation caught my eye. It was from a school custodian. Letters of recommendation are typically superfluous, written by people who the applicant thinks will impress a school. We regularly receive letters from former presidents, celebrities, trustee relatives, and Olympic athletes. But they generally fail to provide us with another angle on who the student is or could be as a member of our community. This letter was different. The custodian wrote that he was compelled to support the student's candidacy because of his thoughtfulness. This young man was the only person in the school who knew the names of every member of the janitorial staff. He turned off lights in empty rooms, consistently thanked the hallway monitor each morning, and tidied up after his peers, even if nobody was watching. This student, the custodian wrote, had a refreshing respect for every person at the school, regardless of position, popularity, or clout. Over 15 years and 30,000 applications in my admissions career, I had never seen a recommendation from a school custodian. It gave us a window onto a student's life in the moments when nothing counted. That student was admitted by unanimous vote of the admissions committee. There are so many talented applicants and precious few spots. We know how painful this must be for students. 
As someone who was rejected by the school where I ended up as a director of admissions, I know firsthand how devastating the words we regret to inform you can be. Until admissions committees figure out a way to effectively recognize the genuine but intangible personal qualities of applicants, we must rely on little things to make the difference. Sometimes an inappropriate email address is more telling than a personal essay. The way a student acts toward his parents on a campus tour can mean as much as a standardized test score. And, as I learned from that custodian, a sincere character evaluation from someone unexpected will mean more to us than any boilerplate recommendation from a former president or famous golfer. Next year, there might be a flood of custodian recommendations, thanks to this essay. But if it means students will start paying as much attention to the people who clean their classrooms as they do their principals and teachers, I'm happy to help start that trend. Colleges should foster the growth of individuals who show promise, not just in leadership and academics, but also in generosity of spirit. Since becoming a mom, I've also been looking at applications differently. I can't help anticipating my son's own dive into the college admissions frenzy 17 years from now. Whether or not he even decides to go to college when the time is right, I want him to resemble a person thoughtful enough to return a granola bar and gracious enough to respect every member in his community. And thank you, Rebecca, for sharing that. And my goodness, I would have let the student in too. And by the way, we're going to be covering a story uh, that came out of the New York Times recently, and it had to do with Harvard. This is one of the first years that they've decided to not let people in because of Facebook posts. So as you're talking to your kids, know that they're now looking at Facebook posts, how you conduct yourself, what you say, stupid stuff you do, lewd stuff, inappropriate stuff you do, and thank goodness, I wish, I wish we'd all get on this. It's a big problem in the country. And uh, good for Harvard uh, for doing that. And thank you again uh, for sharing that story with us, Rebecca Sapke uh, at Dartmouth College. And we also love to hear from you, uh, the members of our audience. And you're about to hear a story from one of our listeners in Chicago, Clay Stroop. I was in the waiting room at the doctor just for a routine checkup and next to me was an elderly woman with her daughter the older woman evidently had some form of dementia and her daughter was showing pictures and explaining with great patience that the two little girls in the photos are her great-granddaughters after some explaining and finally understanding the elderly woman proclaimed you mean I'm a great-grandmother that's wonderful Judging by the look on the daughter's face, it was probably the 100th time she's explained it, but she still treated it like the first. I tell you, it took all I could to keep from getting up and hugging everyone and keeping it all together. Love is so powerful. And it is, and we can always take those kind of short messages from you. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. And thank you, Clay, for sharing that. And again, thank you, Rebecca Sabke of Dartmouth College. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages.
This is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about just about everything here on the show. And this next story, it's all about the tow truck. Here's Monty Montgomery. They get us out of ditches. They're on call 24-7 to assist us on some of our worst days. They can also be an unhappy sight for people who forget to pay their bills or how to park. I'm of course talking about the tow truck, a machine that we often forget the importance of. But behind the wheel of these trucks are men and women dedicated to what they do. The tow truck industry is it's a 24-7 industry. You know, if someone's broke down at 3 a.m., someone needs to come out and get them. It's very similar to the first responders. They, they kind of go hand in hand with that. Um, they're very close with that community also. You know, because if you, if you think, if you see a wreck on the highway, what are the three things you see? You see the ambulance, you see a fire truck, and then you see a tow truck. These guys are very dedicated to the people that they serve. They want to be out there, and they, they sacrifice a lot. You know, they sacrifice their, a lot of their personal life to do it. Because, you know, if they're on call 24-7, they're going to be getting calls 24-7. The, the, the nature of the industry is a Samaritan industry anyway. You know, you, you break down the side of the road, you're going to come out and, and you know help the person. They're very proud of what they do because they know that their industry isn't super well known. It's not something that people talk about on a regular basis. In the United States, the majority of tow trucks are owned and operated by private family enterprises. And that's always been the case, even down to the very first tow truck made by Chattanooga native Ernest Holmes Sr. Um, so Ernest Holmes Sr., he, he started the tow truck. He invented it originally around 1917, 1918, when he got the patent for it. He'd had a friend of his who had broken down, and he was basically stuck in a ditch out in the middle of nowhere. And he called him and he said, hey, I need you to come out and come get me. So he comes out, six guys from his garage, and it took them all day to get the car up out of the ditch. And he said, well, I feel like there's a better way to do this. So Holmes took his 1913 Cadillac and strapped several poles to the back. And thus, the tow truck was born. And he patented his design, which was not only functional, but relatively simple. So they came up with the first record, but it was all hand crank. There, was, there were no electric motors, anything like that, but it was a, what they call a split boom design, where you would have one boom would anchor the car to the ground or to a tree so you would have this cable attached to a tree and then you would use the other one attached to the vehicle and you would pull it up from wherever it came from so that's what was kind of a revolutionary idea and then that that kind of just kind of took hold as far as wreckers went from there on out he was being the original inventor of course the tow truck was an almost immediate success due to its simple solution to a problem which had previously plagued early motorists and Ernest Holmes started receiving orders from all over the United States. The Ernest Holmes company was quickly expanding. After he had come up with the idea of the wrecker and it started selling, he knew he needed more space. So he bought a large piece of property um, kind of out in the middle of nowhere and built up a company where they were solely building wreckers. By the 1930s, they were building a couple thousand a year and selling them. Now, for that time period, that was a lot. You know, that you got to remember that back then, you know, we didn't have as many connections. So it was more of a direct sale kind of thing where it was like if someone in Louisiana needed a wrecker, they would have to reach out to get one. So essentially, he, he had built that up from the ground up solely producing wreckers. Interesting tidbit of information with any of the wreckers, they were almost always named based on how much they cost. So 
If it was a 460, it cost $460. The 485 and the 110 were the couple of the first that were massively produced, being that you know one was $485 and one was $110. Ernest Holmes Sr. also contributed in a massive way to the arsenal of democracy in World War II. His assets were frozen for military use when the war began, so they were dedicated to building solely military records. Now, in the time, time period between 1940 and 1945, he built about 7,500 of them, but most of them were used with what was called the Red Ball Express. After D-Day, um, when they had a supply chain set up to follow the front as it went through Europe, these trucks were used to ferry supplies back and forth from the coast. And uh, the wreckers were part of that. Um, they were used to keep the roads clear for the supply trucks, for the tanks, for the infantry. You know, if, if something was broken down or there was a destroyed tank in the road or a jeep or something like that, they were called in to remove them from the road. They were used for salvage even after the war effort when, when they were cleaning up from all the, the wreckage and everything. They would be out there pulling these tanks up out of the ditches, trying to clear these fields that were people's farms and homes. But yeah, that was, that was primarily what they were used for. Ernest Holmes Sr. continued to expand his business, building more and more records and continuing to refine his invention to be more efficient. Holmes was also active in his community, though. He was extremely active in his Presbyterian church. Um, he was a, a, a huge proponent for a lot of youth programs and that kind of thing. Um, he was also extremely active in the local country club, uh, the Chattanooga Country Club. He loved golf. He would spend pretty much all of his extra time playing golf, which kind of ended up being one of the reasons he, he was in very good health for a long time. Unfortunately for him, he had kind of a tragic death. He was a young man when he passed away. Um, he had gone out and played golf that day. He came home, played a, a game of bridge with some friends. And by that evening, he was just said to his wife, hey, I'm, I'm not feeling well. And in a few hours, he was dead. The innovative company that Ernest Holmes had started would be passed on to his son, Ernest Holmes Jr., who would continue to expand upon what his father had started. After his father passed away, the, the man that originally invented the tow truck, he took over. And he was responsible for a lot of the growth of the Holmes company. Uh, because his father was only in business for about 40 years prior to that and it was pre-war era, that kind of thing. Um, he took it from that and, and made it into a modern entity um, and, and they developed uh, probably a good dozen more models worth of wreckers. They introduced the rail crane which is one of the, the first, uh, basically a wrecker for trains. So he, he was the, the leader of the growth era for that brand. The company that Holmes Jr. took over would eventually break records too. Records that still stand today. In the late 70s, um, they had gone through a uh, time period where they felt that they would, they got very involved with the Indianapolis Speedway um, for obvious reasons. I mean, if there's wrecks and whatnot on the, on the course, you need someone to come out and pick it up. Well, they kind of got this wild hair to, you know, let's see how fast we can make this record go. <laughs> so, um, working with some guys in NASCAR, and um, obviously, like I said, they had been in Indianapolis, they ended up going down to Talladega in Alabama and said, let's see how we can get, how fast we can get it to go after they had built the engine in this. And it set the, the world speed record for a wrecker of 109 miles an hour.
The Ernest Holmes Corporation wasn't just making fast tow trucks though. They were also presenting a business model based on fast service just like the family-run garages on call 24-7 that they served. They had a very good reputation with the wrecking community, the, the, the tow truck industry, the people on the ground, the boots on the ground, because their, their priority was to make sure that you kept your business going. You know, these guys, if, if, you're, if your truck was broken down or your wrecker wasn't working, you weren't making money. So the Holmes Company at the time, their biggest focus was getting parts and service out to their people as quickly as possible. Uh, as soon as order came in, I mean, it was going back out the same day. Um, and that was, that was a big priority for them. And that's what really set them apart from the rest of the competition at the time. The Ernest Holmes Company would eventually be sold to the Dover Corporation in 1973 for $15 million. But that wasn't the end of the Holmes family being involved in innovating in the wrecker industry. Jerry Holmes, Ernest Holmes Jr.'s son, would be one of the first people to invest in the hydraulic wrecker. The Holmes family invested in a new idea and pioneered their own industry. It's easy to forget how important this oftentimes underappreciated invention is to millions of Americans. But tow trucks are truly the unsung heroes of the highway. And good job as always, Monty, and a special thanks to Niall Vincent and the International Museum of Towing in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And we bring you these stories sometimes just for general fun. But remember, it's tinkerers that solve these problems. Guy sees a bunch of buddies with a truck on the road, a car stuck, and improvises. And go to our story on the Wright Brothers, because you'll find the same kind of spirit. And David McCullough does a beautiful job telling that story about a couple of bicycle mechanics from Dayton, Ohio, who start to tinker with this idea of going to flight and solving a problem that governments and top scientists from around the world were trying to solve. But in the end, it was just two guys, two hobbyists, goofing off in Kitty Hawk and playing with wind tunnels that got it done. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to see the Wright Brothers story. And this one just sort of reminded me of that same kind of spirit. The story of the tow truck here on Our American Stories. our American stories and up next we have Rob Kenny's story. Rob's YouTube channel went viral when he started making videos on how to fix things around the house. His YouTube channel is called Dad How Do I? But people are not just going to his channel to learn how to change a shower head. Rob has become everyone's internet dad. Many of his subscribers do not have fathers of their own and they go to his channel to interact with an actual father figure. Rob has his own story with his father. He was born in New Orleans and has six older siblings and one little sister. The family had moved to New Orleans from Wichita, Kansas. They moved away from all of their extended family, which ended up negatively affecting his mother. Here's Rob. 
he made the decision to move us to New Orleans with the FACE program. That was kind of the beginning of, I think my parents started out really well. I, my mom was one of 12 and, and from a farming family and and they're all real close and there's lots of cousins and all that. And so I think that was kind of the beginning for my mom of a, of a struggle because she, I think she saw herself raising her kids around all the cousins and all that support and all that. And so we moved to New Orleans and that's where I was born in 64. And then my sister was um, born in 69, my younger sister. And yeah, that's when things just unfortunately started to started to unravel. Early 70s is when, yeah, my mom started drinking. And I think she had some mental issues too. Plus the fact that she was so far away from her support group. I think she thought she was going to get back there someday. I think that was kind of the hope. You know, we used to have in our downstairs, we'd have what we called the boxes. Um, and they were just boxes of stuff. And my mom never really unpacked. We were raised uh, Catholic and I actually went to Catholic school and we actually lived right next to the public school. A lot of that stuff is fuzzy, I think, because I blocked it out mentally to for my own protection. But I remember when my mom started drinking, like I said, we, we went to the where we lived right by the public school. I remember my mom being passed out on the front lawn and my friends walking by and seeing that and how embarrassed I was. That was tough, you know, that's uh, even as a, I'm, a, I'm 56 now and it still is a little emotional because it was, oh, what what is happening? And so that was kind of the beginning of where I started to see something is is not right. We really relied on each other, though, with uh, my siblings. I, I'm so close to my siblings. We're all um, we all kind of glommed onto each other because of my mom, her dysfunction or whatever you'd call it. My dad got her. Um, considered an unfit mother. So, and he, so he got custody of us, but he didn't really want us. I think he felt like it was the right thing to do to kind of give us some stability, but he really didn't give us the stability because he met another woman and he would load us up with groceries. And so at the time it was my, my younger sister. Um, so she was, you know, eight, seven, eight, and I was, you know, 12, 13, 14. And then I have a brother that's two years older than me. And then I have a, another brother that's three years older than me. And we were kind of <laughs> at the house together trying to, you know, manage. It was tough because there was a lot of shame, you know, even though it's no fault of my own. You know, I'd go off to to school and <laughs> just kind just kind of manage. My dad, again, would load us up with groceries and we, he'd leave us for a week at a time. It was right around October, though, of when I was 14. That's when he came home and just said, you know, I'm, I'm done having kids. And he told the older siblings, either you you take them or I'm going to put them in foster home. That was pretty devastating because I heard that, <laughs> you know, as a 14 year old, I'm like, what? You know, even though we, you know, it was dysfunctional anyway, you knew something wasn't, wasn't right. It was still not easy to hear, you know, that you're being rejected by, by your dad. He did start out well, you know, I, I have to give him credit. He started out well, he just didn't finish well. It was, uh, it was a hard time. I ended up living with my brother. Thankfully, he stepped up my brother, Rick, and we're real close to this day. Him and his wife took me in and he was, <laughs> they were married in October. So it was right around that time, a lot of stuff happening. Him, him and his wife, he was 23, she was 24. They got married and then a couple months later, I went to live with them in January. I moved into an eight by 35 trailer. And so I, you know, my heart goes out to him because <laughs> my, my son is 
25 now and I can't imagine him having a, a 20 or, or a 14 year old all of a sudden living with him let alone with a new wife right and so my heart goes out to both of them Rick and Karen are their names and they they stepped up big time for me that was hard it's hard on all of us it was hard for me you know I'm a you know going through puberty and I shared with my dad when I forgave him I said and I was kind of looking through him when I did and I said dad I was going through puberty I was thinking I was a pervert I had all these thoughts in my head thinking what is going on and that's when you left me you know it's like I I don't think you quite understand the the timing of everything was really hard for me I, I struggled with it for a long time into my 20s forgiving my dad I referred to him in not good terms you know uh, my dad my mom was an alcoholic my dad was a you know fill in the blank I, I didn't have any respect for him. I, you know, I felt like he traded us for this other woman. Yeah. So I, I really struggled with that. And then my wife and I, I met my wife um, at Boeing. She's one of eight herself and she's a very strong woman. And we got married um, in 91 and I was working at a job. I thought it was a successful job. Anna Lee, my wife got pregnant and I lost my job because I was just so stressed out. It, it, it was a, uh, I struggled because it was October and then you got the holidays. And so I'm feeling like a failure. My wife's going off to work pregnant and I'm, what am I doing? You know, and I had all these best laid plans and I cried out to God from, from my skeptical perspective. And I just said, I, you know, I don't know if you exist, I, but I, I've done a number here and I don't know how to get out of it. So if you, if you help me, you know, if you can bail me out, I'll do everything I can to search and try to understand and, you know, uh, understand what happened or what, or what to do with my life and, you know, give me some stability. And then we also found out when we went to the doctor with my daughter that they tell, tell you to take this alpha theta protein test. It's supposed to test for Down syndrome. So it came back positive. So we had to do an amniocentesis to actually draw the the skin cells, I think, out is what they do. And they're able to tell whether the child's going to be Down syndrome. And again, you got to think of where my head was at the time. Now that wouldn't be, I, it wouldn't be any big deal. But where my head was, was selfishly thinking, oh, well, we got to have to do something then. Um, and, and our physician at the time, too, I felt like she was a little calloused about it, too. You know, you're not prepared to bring a Down syndrome child into this world, you know, like, okay, well, that's my baby, though. And so I still was trying to process it all. So fast forward a little bit, you get into January, and then I, things started to fall into place. I still remember standing in the phone booth. This was before <laughs> cell phones were a thing. Standing in the phone booth, talking to my wife and finding out that, yeah, our daughter was going to be, you know, she's not Down syndrome. She's going to be fine. And then I got, I ended up getting a job. Um, I ended up taking any job because I, I just needed a job. And I ended up working for a company called Postal Express delivering packages. And I was like, I just got to get in the workforce because I got to get back out there. And so I I went back to a, a previous employer that I worked at just out, just out of high school in office supplies. I went in there just to kind of explain things to them. They said, well, would you like a job? And and the next thing you know, we um, we were able to get a house before my daughter was born. We were living in an apartment at the time, and things just started to fall into place. And I was like, "Okay, this is this can't be a coincidence. It's just everything's kind of lining up." And so, I compare the story to when the apostles are on this on the ocean, and the ocean's going crazy, and they're all panicking, and, and then and Jesus is asleep, 
and they go, hey, hey, you know, <laughs> come out here. We don't, you know, we're, you know, we're in this middle of this storm. And he comes out and he calms the storm and it says, and then they became very afraid. That's where I was. It was like, I had the storm going on and I'm, oh my goodness, what's happening? And then it's like, oh, wait a second, you exist? <laughs> so then I've lived my life a, a certain way based on what my per perspective was. So it was like, okay, that was, so it was actually a little more terrifying now that things calm down. So I started um, studying and reading the Bible for myself and understood, um, man, the Bible's good news. You know, the gospel is good news. As a Christian, I've been forgiven much. And so I, I can't hold something against somebody. And I've shared in another, you know, this is, it's profound or it's profound in my, in my mind, but just the visual of what I've said in one of my videos is unforgiveness is like drinking poison and hoping somehow it hurts the other person. It's so true. When I heard that, I was like, wow, I am, I'm drinking this poison and I keep reminding myself and I keep chewing on it and it's killing me. <laughs> it's not helping me. It's, and it, that other person, my dad is probably just oblivious or doesn't really realize what he did. Cause I think he kind of isolated himself to protect himself from the guilt that probably ate away at him. Fast forward, a, <laughs> you know, a long ways. Our relationship was always superficial. I'm just not going to lie. He became a Christian probably in his 70s, but it still was superficial. I try to be pretty real. I really, I do. With my own kids, I've been vulnerable. I've told them, you know, I've asked them for forgiveness all along because I don't want that superficial relationship. You know, superficiality is, I don't have time for it. My brother, Rick, who I lived with, said, talked to my dad and said, Dad, you know, now that you're a Christian, you need to go around and and ask for forgiveness. And my dad was willing to do that. By that time, he was a little bit of a shell of himself. He was in his 80s. It was on a boat. Um, he asked me for forgiveness. And for me, it was pretty easy. I'm just gonna be honest with you. I'd already forgiven him a long time ago. I didn't actually ever tell him, but I, I'd forgiven him. You know, I'd moved on because it was in my own best interest to do that. But when we were on, a, on the boat there, when he asked me to forgive him, I said, Dad, I've already, forgive, already forgiven you. I've been forgiven much. Um, there's no way I could hold anything against you. I just wanna help you understand though what you did, you know? And so that's when I said, Dad, you know, I, that was just a tough time. You know, I, I struggled for a long time trying to figure out things, you know, but it was unfortunately, I was kind of looking through him. There wasn't, it wasn't dramatic. It wasn't, oh, you know, again, I think it's because I, I forgave him a long time ago because it was in my own best interest. And so another thing I think I need to share is because um, I, I openly share about my faith because it's everything to me too. I, you know, I, I and I would, be, I'd be doing a disservice to anybody if I said, man, I'm so great. I've got it all together. Look at me. You know, I'm not the standard. I, I absolutely am not. I'm just doing my best. I'm a dad that's trying to do the best that I can. And I'm supposed to, you know, do unto others as I would have them do unto me. Right. I mean, I'm called to be kind. I'm called to, you know, love my neighbor as myself. Yeah, so the channel, I thought of it a couple of years ago. And, you know, um, I talk to my kids all the time, my adult children about, you know, just and just walk alongside them because, you know, it, your parenting doesn't end when they move out. They're asking adulting questions. And I've always said, you don't know what you don't know. <laughs> you just don't know what you don't know because you, you haven't crossed that path before. You don't know that you don't know how to unclog a sink because you've never had to because I've done it, right? Yeah, I thought 
this might be helpful for just a few people and I thought it would be worth it. You know, if I, I always say I, I thought I'd help 30 or 40 people. I honestly thought that that's what I would do with my um, channel. I thought I'd be able to, you know, I, and then when I got 300 subscribers, I'm like, oh my goodness, what? There's a bigger need for this, you know? And then I got to a thousand and I'm like, oh, okay. And then my daughter checked with me, dad, I think there's a bigger need for this. People are connecting with you on a different level and people were watching me tie a tie and crying. I'm like, <laughs> it can't be that I'm so bad at tying a tie. It must be because they are connecting like with a father figure that maybe they didn't have, right? Obviously, I'm not that I'm not that brilliant, but I was able to put that together, right? And it wouldn't have happened had the quarantine not happened because I, I thought of it again a couple of years ago and thought, ah, and I'll get to it someday. And, you know, someday I'm going to be able to have the time. And uh, it probably would have happened when I retired in my mid-60s. But, um, yeah, so I finally had some time. My daughter said, Dad, you, you need to do it. You know, now's the time. And so I, I didn't do it for fame. I didn't do it for money. I, and one thing that I really like about it is my life not my life goal, but yeah, I mean, it kind of was a life goal, I guess, was to raise good adults. And my wife and I did that, right? It's kind of, that's kind of done. And in a morbid way, I was kind of thinking, okay, now, now what do you want me to do, Lord? You know, I, I've still got some, I'm a young man, you know, I'm in my mid fifties. Do I just retire? And then I ride off into the sunset. Is that, you know, is that what you have for me? And lo and behold, <laughs> when everything started happening, I'm like, Lord, I'm drinking from a fire hose here. Slow down. Your blessings are just, I'm buried. I don't even know how to handle it. I can't breathe. You know, I was overwhelmed by it. I'm actually going to do a video today because I, I've got to buy some time here. I, you know, my reg, I'm still working full time. <laughs> so I'm, I'm still, because I think that that's a good example also to my subscribers or my kids, you know, my internet kids. I, I don't want I wouldn't want them if all of a sudden it looks like this flash in the pan, you know, it could be a flash in the pan, right? It could be here today and then chew me up and spit me out and I'm gone next month, you know? Yeah, and I, I've got a decent amount of content now. It's not extensive, but I think if I can slowly, you know, um, my channel was built on kindness. We're trying to be good to each other and welcoming to anybody. I don't care who you are, come on in and be empowered. And um, I love the community that's kind of built around it. I feel like it's no longer about me. It's about people wanting community and wanting to be supported. Um, in the comments, you'll read some really heartbreaking stories and I just don't have the bandwidth to reply to all of them. And I, I try to chime in, but I also, I got to keep my sanity too. And I, I can get sucked in, I call it being sucked into the vortex. Cause I'm like, oh my goodness, two hours have gone by and I'm reading the comments. I, I've got stuff I got to do. I've tried to keep it a safe place for anybody. You know, you get trolls coming in and it's like, okay, you know, I'm just going to hide you from my channel. I don't, you know, we don't need that here. We're trying to promote kindness. I kind of feel like I'm along almost for the ride now. It's like if I, I think if I took down the channel <laughs> that people would be pretty mad because they're, they're relating to each other, not, not even necessarily watching my videos. You know, they're commenting to each other. It's like, uh, you know, my views on my, I got all these subscribers, but I don't have a ton of views, which I, I understand though, too, because it's a how-to, you know, if you don't need to change your battery, why would you watch my how-to change a battery? But other people are watching it just because the father-son connection. I had this guy last night say, yeah, I'm a, electrical engineer and I work on cars and I'm just watching it for the father, <laughs> father, son bonding moment. And so I actually had to come up with a mission statement because I wanted to be true to myself and true to my subscribers and, you know, and stay on, 
on task, right? And part of that is I want to encourage other dads that maybe have gotten off track because I see it in the comments. I see that, oh, my dad's there and he's been a provider, but he, we don't have any kind of connection. And so I'm like, you know, I want to encourage dads if you've gotten off track. And I said, you know, when you hold your baby, I, I'd like to think for the most part, this is the experience. I know for me, it was when I held my daughter, I was like, oh, you know, I'm going to do anything and everything I can for you. And then life gets in the way, you know, you, you go off to work and you have a bad day and you are in traffic and you're dealing with all this stuff. And, you know, there's life is tough. And so I, I was actually thinking it might not be a bad idea for a dad to have a mission statement, you know, so that if you get off track, refer back to what you what you promised them, right? So that you can get back on track and engage. And I've tried to encourage dads to be real with their kids too, so that they admit that you're you're not perfect because they're gonna find out sooner or later. You may as well get out in front of it, right? Get out in front of it and say, hey, I'm just doing my best. And I, one of the things I've shared is it's happened fairly natural for me because as a Christian, we pray, you know? And so at night we I pray and I, you know, I'm accountable to, God for how I raise my kids and you know how my wife and I do this and so it happened naturally just to admit my faults you know if I you know lost my temper during the day I would just say you know I'm trying to do my best and please forgive me and kids are quick to forgive they really are if you try to keep this facade up of that you've got it all figured out you're you're setting yourself up for a a rebellion and that sort of thing. You know, I tried to walk alongside my kids and I didn't, again, I'm not perfect by any means. And it, on my channel, that's something I, I'm also a little, I get a little nervous about because they call me Mr. Rogers. I'm like, ah, you know, Mr. Rogers, I, and Mr. Rogers would admit that he's not perfect either, but he, he kind of symbolizes this ideal father. But I, I, unfortunately people can project that onto you like you're, oh, you know, they, and they set a standard that nobody can live up to. Because, you know, if, if you spend any time with me, I'm a pretty normal guy. I don't, you know, I'll have a beer. I'm not the, you know, I'm not the standard. Please don't aim at me. Go better than, no, do better than me. I, and I've shared that with my kids too. I, I wanted you to stand on my shoulders so you can go further than me. Don't settle for me. And you've been listening to Rob Kenny and his YouTube channel, Dad, How Do I? And great job, as always, to Faith for putting the piece together and to Stan for getting the interview done. And my goodness, for unforgiveness comes up again and again in so many of our stories. And what Rob said was unforgiveness is like drinking a poison and hoping it hurts the other person. He learned how to forgive his dad, had his mom move forward and be the dad his dad never was, and now a dad to all these strangers who need help being a dad and who don't have one. And I love his mission statement idea. Every dad should have one. It can keep you focused. And also, you've got to be real with your kids. And I love that he talked about losing his temper, but quickly asking the kids for, forgive, for forgiveness. And as he said so correctly, kids are always willing to forgive fast. Rob Kenny's story, so many fathers trying to be their best possible dad here on Our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, 
and from business to history and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And now it's time for our regular series, The Backstory, about the names and brands that we all know, but whose backstories we don't. Our own Alex Cortez brings us today's story. My cousin Paul used to like to say that we're in the business of defending the world from bland food, you know. Want to take a guess what this guy's product is? Well, I'm not going to tell you yet, but I'll tell you this. Its origin dates far back before this guy was a twinkle in his mama's eye and with another guy named Edmund. Great-great-grandfather was born in Hagerstown, Maryland in 1815, and We don't know a lot about his young life, but we know that he had found his way to New Orleans by the early 1840s, and he became a banker. He was a successful banker, and he ended up buying five branches of the Bank of Louisiana from the bank and becoming an independent banker. And as he traveled around to his various branches, he became friends with Daniel Avery, who was here at Avery Island, the very same island about two and a half hours outside of New Orleans where I interviewed this guy. And when Daniel Avery's daughter, Mary Eliza, turned 20, his 40-year-old friend announced to him that he was actually secretly in love with Mary Eliza and wanted to marry her. It didn't go over too well, but um, because Edmund had been a bachelor, he'd never been married. Mary Eliza imposed on her father and got him to agree to let her marry Edmund. So they married just before the Civil War. But he lost everything in the war. His banks were gone, he was destitute, and he was forced to live here at Avery Island in his father-in-law's home. And it's rumored that about the same time, an unknown man walked up to Edmund one day, handed him some seeds, and simply told him, try these. This is a very hot pepper. And so he did, supposedly. He definitely did plant some unknown seeds around then, believed to be from Mexico or Central America. But then he was forced to flee that land, too. And this pepper plant was probably about the last thing on his mind they discovered that the reason Avery Island is pushed up through the marsh is there's a giant mountain of salt underneath it. Well, at that point, salt was a valuable commodity. I mean, it was huge to preserve food, and it was being blockaded uh, from the south. So they sent in groups from the various states around the Confederacy to mine the salt. And as soon as the Union realized that there was a source for salt, they sent in a troop to occupy Avery Island and prevent the mining of the salt. So the family left Avery Island during the Civil War. When they came back at the end of the Civil War, Edmund's diary tells us he found one of his pepper plants growing at the side of the chicken coop. And every plant we plant today comes from that plant. And this pepper's product, the world now knows as McElhaney's Tabasco. This red wonder of the world that prevents blandness from ever thinking about entering our day. And Tony Simmons, who we've been hearing from, is the former CEO of McElhaney's and a member of the family. 
and their family's hot sauce brand is so legendary that many of us don't dare utter the word hot sauce without even thinking about it. We use their trademark instead, Tabasco. We're not actually sure why he named it Tabasco. They're stories, but we don't know for certain why he settled on the name Tabasco. The sauce with a mysterious name from the mysterious seed became synonymous with the category. We employ a doctor of history, Dr. Shane Bernard, our historian, and he does a really good job of trying to keep the truth and the family stories separated. And he cannot find any primary source evidence that tells us where he actually got the seed. The mysteries remain. Nevertheless, Edmund McElhaney began this thing called Tabasco with only he and his plate of food in mind. He was making Tabasco for himself, and his family encouraged him as he would travel to New Orleans to try to find work to take product and sell it, so he did. And by 1868, it had become enough of a commercial success that he decided it made sense to start the company. So in 1868, he started McElhaney Company. So we're celebrating our 150th year in business as a family company. But it started as a cottage industry, you know? And it started just making it in a spare building close to the family residence here on Abraham. An island that the McElhaney family now 100% owns but whose product goes far out from it, even in those early days. Well, we know it was traveling around the world because we have a letter in our archives from an English soldier who was serving in India in the 1880s. And he wrote a letter to his mother in the UK telling her that he had just had this wonderful product made in America called Tabasco. And if she could find some in the grocery, would she buy it and send him some? And by the way, she might want to buy some for herself as well. So we know we were making our way around the world by the 1880s. And now we ship to over 185 countries and we bottle in 22 languages and dialects. And we do all that here at Avery Island. Every bottle of Tabasco in the world is made here at Avery Island. And you're listening to Tony Simmons, the former CEO of McElhaney's Tabasco. And it's a fifth-generation family business. We love these stories. The Steinway story is so similar in so many ways. And we love featuring these businesses that get passed down from generation to generation. 1868, they started, or he started. And it was 150 years later that we're still talking about a product that gets shipped to 180. 85 countries and in 22 languages. When we come back, more of the backstory, the backstory of McElhaney's Tabasco with former CEO Tony Simmons here on Our American Story. And we continue with Our American Stories and with Tony Simmons, 
who's bringing us the backstory of his family business that he was the fifth generation CEO of, and that's McElhaney's Tabasco. Let's get back to Tony on how they make this Tabasco thing. About six weeks ago, we started planting seeds in our greenhouse. Mid-April, we'll transplant those little plants to our fields here on Avery Island, and we'll grow them out all summer. In the fall, depending on how much sun we get, how much rain we get, sometime between mid-August and the end of September, we'll harvest peppers. And we pick certain plants to harvest just for the seeds. And then we take those seeds and we send them to our growers in Central and South America. Most of them are small farmers, like in Honduras. I think we got about 400 small farmers growing for us. We're actually growing in Central America, South America, and Africa. And the main reason is we think the pepper actually came from Central America, probably from the Andes or the Amazon Valley somewhere, Colombia, Peru. When you look at our pepper plant, you'll see green pepper, you'll see yellow pepper, you'll see orange pepper, red pepper, and bright red pepper. The only way I have to control the color of the product is only to pick the reddest, ripest pepper. So you go back through the fields over and over and over again, only picking the reddest, ripest pepper and leaving the rest of the pepper on the bush. So it's a very labor-intensive process to pick uh, Tabasco peppers, and so far, uh, we haven't been successful with creating a mechanical harvester that's commercially viable. We're close, and we're working on it. We've been working on it for a number of years. But at this point, all Tabasco peppers still needs to be picked by hand. They grind the peppers into a mash, and then they ship those ground-up peppers back to us, and we put them in oak barrels, and we age that pepper for up to three years. And then we make Tabasco with them by mixing a certain amount of mash with vinegar in 2,000-gallon mixing tanks. And then we, when we drain it, we strain most of the pepper solids out, and then we make a final product. So from the time we plant a seed here on Avery Island to grow seed pepper, for our growers until the time we put it in the bottle and ship it. It's about a five-year process for us to make Tabasco. And unlike a lot of CEOs, the process is so important to Tony that he makes it a priority to personally be a part of it every day that he possibly can. At 9 o'clock in the morning, if I'm here, I go down to the blending area and they'll have up to 96 barrels of mash out for me to look at. If I'm not there by 9.15, they can start doing the processing to mix it because they don't know what my schedule is, so they don't know when I'm on the island and when I'm not on the island, so they, they have to assume every day I'm gonna be there, but I travel, so I can't be there every morning. Now, we have quality control people that check as well. Every batch gets checked. But the main reason I do it is to impress upon every single employee we have that if it's worth the CEO's time 
to go down there every morning and make sure this is right before we make Tabasco, nothing we do is more important than making sure that product's right every single time. Every time. It's got to be right. You know? And that's the main reason I do it. Not because my guys don't know how to check it. It's very rare for me to reject a barrel of mash. Very, as a matter of fact, in the last year, I think I've rejected one barrel of mash. And I was kind of surprised that they put it out, really, you know, because it just smelled terrible. I mean, we're not making Tabasco with this. Tony had the tall task of protecting a family legacy against the huge headwinds that family businesses face. 70% of family-owned businesses fail in the second generation, and by the third generation, 88% will have failed. Fourth generation is, they say, probably between 2 and 4%. We'll survive a fourth generation. McElhaney's is in its fifth generation. There's no statistics for that. They might be too small to measure. So how do they keep keeping it alive and growing it? It starts with remembering the big shoes they have to fill. You've heard about the patriarch Edmund. Just wait until you meet his son. John uh, was the eldest son. And when Edmund McElhinney died in 1890, John took over the company, but he resigned in 1898 so he could join Theodore Roosevelt and become a Rough Rider, which he did. The Rough Riders fought in Cuba's War of Independence from Spain, with then Assistant Secretary of the Navy Theodore Roosevelt as their second in command. This all-volunteer cavalry was made up of all sorts, from cowboys to college athletes, ranchers, miners and a man who made Tabasco for a living. And actually rose to being a lieutenant in the Rough Riders, and he remained lifelong friends with Theodore Roosevelt. But when he left in 1898, E.A. McElhinney, his younger brother, was just returning from Point Barrow, Alaska, and took over as president of the company. E.A. McElhinney was an Arctic explorer, was very much of a conservationist, a botanist. In 1895, he recognized that the snowy egret was being hunted to extinction, and he went out around the marshes of Avery Island, and he captured seven or eight snowy egrets. He built an aviary for them. A large enclosed space where they could live and breed safely. And then let them breed their young and hatch out. And when the young were old enough to fly and to migrate, he let them go. And we get thousands and thousands of snowy egrets that come back to Avery Island every year to nest from those original birds that EA caught. They came back because they were able to hatch their young here and do it safely. And then EA actually created a bird sanctuary. This was one of the first bird sanctuaries in the United States. So the birds were protected. They couldn't be hunted here, as long as they could get themselves onto Avery Island. But a lot of our approach to how we take care of Avery Island comes from EA. He was a conservationist before anybody knew what a conservationist was. And people kind of wonder about it a little bit because he was so interested in birds and protecting birds and helping wildlife, but he also liked to hunt. He has some ponds he built 
just to the north of Avery Island that we still shoot ducks on today. When he built those ponds, there were no limits. But if EA invited you to hunt on his ponds with him, you could shoot all the ducks you wanted to shoot with one box of shells. You could take 25 shells with you, and however many ducks you could kill with your 25 shells, that was your limit. And he was doing that when there was no limit, just as his concept of conservation uh, in, in hunting. So in some ways, he was way ahead of his time, and he instilled in us the concept of don't waste. Be conservative in everything you do because your resources are limited and you need to make sure you, you pay attention. So as we harvested the resources that were available to us on Avery Island, our motto, our approach has always been, if you're going to do something that disrupts this environment, we want you to put it back as close as possible that it can be put back at the end to leave the land as good or better than you found it. You know, when conservation and sustainability became a big corporate initiative, we didn't really have to make it a corporate initiative. It's been a corporate initiative here for over 100 years. And just wait until you meet EA's nephew. Next segment. John's son, Walter, who was a member of the United States Marine Corps Reserve and had served in the Pacific in the Second World War, took over the company. And Walter had received a Navy Cross, a Silver Star, and a Purple Heart at Guadalcanal. And you've been listening to Tony Simmons, former CEO of McElhaney's Tabasco. You're listening to the backstory. And my goodness, what he was saying about intergenerational family businesses is so true. 70% fail in the second generation, 88 in the third, and 95 plus fail in the fourth. And this is a fifth generation family business and continuing to thrive. The remarkable story. The backstory continues. The McElhaney Tabasco story continues too here on Our American Story. continue with our American stories and with Tony Simmons and he's the former CEO of McElhaney's Tabasco and we're bringing you the backstory of this remarkable company and a product we all know and we all use. Let's get back to Tony on their fourth family member to run the company, Walter McElhaney. Walter, when I was a boy at his fireplace had a helmet next to it and that helmet had a dent in it. And on his, one of his tables, he had a samurai sword, a Japanese samurai sword. And he told us that when he was on Guadalcanal... For the infamous battle with the Japanese there in World War II. He was coming up over a ridge and he surprised a Japanese squad. And the officer, seeing Walter, 
swung his sword. He didn't even take it out of the scabbard. He just swung the sword at Walter's helmet. Walter said, as he was swinging the sword, I was pulling my firearm, and I shot him, but he hit me before I could finish shooting him. So they had to lower him back down the cliff in a basket to evacuate him, but his guys put the sword and the helmet with him. So he had those souvenirs from the encounter. But then they dropped the basket on the way down the cliff. Just to make sure that you got all that, that basket that they accidentally dropped off the cliff, yep, it had Walter in it. But Walter also, he was hit with a machine gun wound on Guadalcanal, and he was sent back to Australia to recuperate after he was injured on Guadalcanal. And after the war, to cure himself of the understandable fear of heights that he contracted, Walter hunted mountain goats. He used to tell the story that his orders, when he was discharged from the hospital in Australia, his orders were to return to the United States, but he didn't want to go back to the United States. He wanted to go back to his squad and he told a story about how he hopscotched his way back to his unit. And when he got back to his unit and reported into his CO, his CO said, give me your orders. And he said, I lost them. And he said, no, you didn't give me your orders. And he said, when he handed him his orders, he said, the orders say, you're supposed to go back to the United States. You're not supposed to be here. And he said, I don't want to go back to the United States. I want to fight. And Anyway, he ended up getting to go back to his unit. He was a pretty amazing man. And when Walter was in the foreign country of Australia, he did get to see someone who wasn't so foreign. He greets his godmother, First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt, on her goodwill tour to Australia in September of 1943. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt was actually Walter's brother, Jack's godfather. And this intertwining of familial and national histories has led to a deep appreciation of Theodore Roosevelt in Tony, and especially for his speech, The Man in the Arena. It's a wonderful thing. That's right. It's not the critic who counts, you know. It, it's just one of the greatest quotes ever. It's just, you know where he, you know where he made that speech, don't you? He, he gave that speech at the Sobans in France because... He was very concerned about elitism, that people may look down on the working man. And Tony proceeded to read the most famous passage of this speech. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotion, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, 
so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. I got a framed copy of it, Alex. <laughs> you know, I do. Oh, man, you're almost crying. Oh, I'm telling you, it's just, you know, to tear you up thinking about what the man did. I mean, he's just amazing. You know, he also, we have copies of his correspondence to John McElhinney to go on the bear hunt in Mississippi or Arkansas, and John actually attended that hunt. And they couldn't find a bear for the president to shoot, so they tied a bear to the tree, they found a sickly bear, tied it, and they went and got the president, brought him over so he could kill a bear, and he refused to kill a bear. And when that the press got that story, they named it Teddy's Bear, and that's where the teddy bear came from. Now, you probably didn't expect to learn that in a story about Tabasco sauce. Now, did you? And closer to home, Tony was very blessed that this Uncle Walter was very much a part of his life. Walter stayed in the Marine Corps Reserve. He retired as a Brigadier General. And I can tell you from knowing him very well as a young boy, he really liked being referred to as... General McElhenney. <laughs> he liked that a lot. But Walter was a great man. He was a lot of fun. And he used to invite his young cousins like me to stay with him in the summer. It was great. I mean, you had a formal dinner every night. You sat, and, you know, you, I was part of what I would call the people who take their shower when they come home from work, not before they go to work, uh, because I was working either for my grandmother or working for McElhenney Company in the summer. So when I'd get off in the afternoon, I'd go home and clean up. Because I had to be dressed for dinner. Now we didn't wear a tie, but I had to wear, you know, a clean shirt after working in the field. So, but every night, except on the weekends, but for each of the the weeknights, when I was a boy in the '60s, at six o'clock, Walter's butler, Mr. Willie, would announce dinner, and he and I would walk in, and he'd sit at one end of the table, and I'd sit at the other end of the table, and Mr. Willie would serve would serve us dinner. You know, I mean, it was very old school, but that was Walter. And besides their family's legacy of giants to look up to, Tony credits his family's legacy of their kids doing hard labor on the island for why the family business is still going strong in its fifth generation and with six generation members rising through the ranks. The family philosophy has sort of been idle hands are the devil's workshop. So one of the things that we do, Alex, is that we invite our young family members to come to work for us in high school and in college for the summer. And it allows them to experience what it's like to work here. Honestly, we give them the worst jobs in the place. We do. We absolutely give them the worst jobs in the place. And we tell them that they're going to be held to a higher standard than the other summer help because we'll hire, every summer we hire a bunch of employees, kids, to do extra work around Avery Island. And, you know, we tell our family, when you come to work here as a family member, you will be held to a higher standard. Even if they can goof off a little bit and get away with it, you can't. You can't, because you're a family member. And you're listening to Fifth Generation Family Member and former CEO of McElhaney's Tabasco, Tony Simmons. And my goodness, putting the kids to work like that and holding them to a higher standard. 
well, it's just good old common sense, and it's not that common anymore. Uh, it's hard enough to find people getting their kids working at the age of 14 or 15 or 16 these days. But to make them work, make them do the worst jobs, and then hold them to a higher standard, well, boy, you'd just be, well, maybe you'd have a division of youth and services sicked after you today. When we come back, more of the remarkable story of the McElhaney Tabasco family business, fifth generation, still going strong, still making bland food taste great. The backstory continues here on Our American Stories. And we continue here with Our American Stories and with Tony Simmons, who's bringing us the backstory of his own family business that's now been running strong for over five generations. And again, he was the former CEO of McElhaney's Tabasco. Let's return to Tony on one of the trials that they faced in his lifetime. Everybody remembers Hurricane Katrina because it devastated New Orleans so bad. Hurricane Katrina was not an event at Avery Island because we were farther enough west to where we weren't impacted by the storm. But two weeks after Hurricane Katrina, Hurricane Rita came through the western part of Louisiana and we had eight feet, two inches of water at the plant. And the plant floor is at eight feet, six inches. So we had four inches left before we would have had water in a food plant. and We'd have been closed for months and months to clean up before we would have been back in operation. They were still forced to close for six working days, which is no small matter for a business trying to care for its families. So after that, we decided to build a protection system around the plant to increase that protection up to 18 feet, six inches. We're almost 14 miles in from the coast here, so We think 18 feet, six inches is a good number. Rita was one of the worst. It was the worst water this area has ever seen in anybody's memory. And it only got to eight feet, two inches. So we now have protection to 18 feet, six inches. But this fortification came at a price, a literal price in dollars and an emotional price in desire. We were going to put a museum in New Orleans and an office over the museum. And we took the money we had dedicated for that project. And instead, we built the levee. And then we had to assume we were going to lose electricity in that case. So we put in a standby power generation system with twin 750 kW generators and a 10,000-gallon diesel fuel tank to run them. Either pump is supposed to be capable of keeping the facility dry, and either generator is capable of running both pumps at once. So Murphy's Law, whatever can go wrong will go wrong at the worst possible time. So we have 100% redundancy on our system to try to make sure we don't flood ourselves. This shows just how difficult business can be 
even 150 years into it, but time and time again, McElhaney's has found strength in one very deep reservoir. We have a very stable workforce, which it also helps the company as well. When I first got here in 2000, we did an award ceremony to award people for their years of service. And I think we had 201 or 202 employees at the time. And I totaled up their years of service and it came out to like 2,165 years of service over those 200 employees. So, you know, we have a very stable workforce that has a lot of institutional knowledge about what we do and how we do it. And that's, that serves us in absolutely good stead. We can't compete against the oil field when it comes to wages. When, when the oil field is really going, when things are good in the oil field, they pay way more money than we can afford to pay as a food manufacturer. But a lot of our employees who would be able to get those jobs choose not to do so for a couple of reasons. One is we, we offer a very competitive package of benefits, so their health care coverage, that type of thing is going to be equal. What we don't offer is that hourly wage that they could make, but to some extent that hourly wage, also a lot of our oil and gas business here is offshore, which means they have to be away from their families for extended periods of time. And as you've seen in the last few years, when the oil industry is bad, it's very bad. And we don't lay people off. We don't have large reductions of force. So people that work for us tend to know that, you know, I can make a good living. I can be home with my family every night. I can get a good benefit package. And I won't make as much as I'll make in the oil field. But you know what? I'm not going to be laid off either. So, uh, you know, so it makes a difference. Yeah. It makes a difference. And that's how we're able to keep really good people working for us. And what also leads employees to want to stay with McElhaney's is that almost every time there's a job opening, there's an opportunity to move up. First, we post internally. And our own employees can post for the job. If we have a job open for a line leader and four people uh, post for it, we put together a team to interview those people that consist of the HR manager, the person in charge of that area, and three people that will have to work with that person on that line, actually work for that person. They interview those candidates. They vote. They can vote that none of them are a good candidate, that we need to go outside, we need to expand, we don't think any of these people are qualified. But the three people that have to work for them vote first. If they're unanimous on a candidate, that person gets the job. The supervisor and the HR person don't get to vote until after those. Our employees know that, but what happens is we'll fill a line leader position. Then that would probably be filled from somebody who's a partner operator or doing something. Now that position becomes available. So what happens is almost every job in the company 
ends up, everybody moves up one after another. It just steps in. And the only opening to the outside world ends up being at the lowest rung. And usually that's a part-time employee who applies for a full-time position and they get that. And now we, we hire a new part-time person and it works very well. It's good for morale because people know you can't just get promoted because you kiss somebody's patoot that, you know, the people that you're going to have to work with and that know the lay of the land, they're going to get to have a say-so in whether or not you get the job. It's been a great way for us to have good esprit de corps. People know the system. They know how you get promoted here. They also know that the people that work for us are going to get a first shot at the openings. And they also know that they can live at their place of work, this tiny two-mile-wide Avery Island, if they want to. I've been holding that little pristine pearl of quaintness back from you this whole story. Out of McElhaney's 200 employees, around half of them freely decide to live on Avery Island with Tony and his family. Well, we had to have housing on Avery Island for our workers because the closest city, New Iberia, is seven miles away. And that's too far for people to come and go to work when you go to work on a horse. So we built housing here at Avery Island so we could have workers and them have a place to live. And McElhinney Company still owns about 60 houses on Avery Island that we lease to our employees. And we have about 180 people, I think, that live on Avery Island. Most of them are employees and the family of employees that work for us. And that is a legacy from when we needed to have housing on Avery Island in order to have a workforce. Now, most of the people who live on Avery Island that work for us do it either because they're young and they're trying to save up money so that they can buy a home, or they grew up here and just want to live here, or they have small children and they enjoy having the freedom those children can have on Avery Island they can't have in a city or somewhere else because it's pretty hard for a kid to get in too much trouble on Avery Island. You know, if, if you live in our housing, we have a big playground they can go play on. They, they get a lot of freedom. There's a little store. Everybody knows each other. Everybody knows who everybody's kids are. So everybody's kind of watching out for everybody else. And, in, and even though there is traffic on and off the island, it, in some ways it's a gated community because we do monitor who comes and goes off the island. So. You know, children can have a lot more freedom here than they can have in some other places. Especially if they move here and the kids get used to that kind of freedom, then the kids don't want to leave anyway. So, but it's very quiet. You can't even get a pizza delivered to Avery Island. You can maybe get one delivered to Avery Island at the, at the toll gate. They might be willing to bring a pizza there, but that's about it. And great job, as always, to Alex Cortez, and a special thanks to Tony Simmons, the former CEO of McElhaney's Tabasco. And my goodness, they're in the business of defending the world against bland food. I love that as a mission statement for a company. And my goodness, they've been doing it for a really long time. Again, those statistics, I've got to hit you with them one more time. Second-generation businesses fail at the rate of 70%. Third-generation business at the rate of 88% and over 95% by the fourth generation fail. And these guys, these folks at McElhinney, fifth generation going strong, 
and still changing the world and changing our palates. By the way, if you have a local family business story around your country that's multi-generational, please send them our way. OurAmericanNetwork.org is where you can send them. In times of stress, when small businesses are under assault through tough economic times, you can sort of feel and understand, A, how hard it is to get a business going, and the catastrophe it is when one of these businesses closes. The lives, the families, yeah, the product too, but the world can live without a product. But these folks can't live without these jobs. A beautiful story, another great backstory, the story of McElhaney's Tabasco, here on Our American Story. 